wear and tear. What do you guys know about that? A little bit? <laughs> we were just having this discussion by the door that wear and tear is a regular part of life and you start noticing it a bit more as you get older. Uh, but we, we do experience it with our bodies, with appliances, furniture. Like when you rent a, a house, there's a certain amount of wear and tear that's expected, right? It, there, there is wear and tear. Uh, it can even mark a relationship. Someone that you love can do something and, and wear on you until you finally snap. The Bible says that Rebecca, she was weary of life because of Esau's daughters, uh, Esau's wives, excuse me. The daughters of Heth, the women he chose to marry, she's like, I am weary of life, living with these women. Um, Job, he was weary of suffering. We can be worn out from a hard day's work or just be weary from the same work all the time. And if a stone can be worn down over time through a drip of water, something that seems insignificant, we too can be worn down. Moses was warned by Jethro. He says, you need to start delegating some authority because you're going to wear away in the service of God. So he listened to him. That was wise. And as Christians, we have to learn to intentionally find rest and renewal in God through Christ in faith. It's only through him, not the cessation of work or activity or effort, where we truly find rest for our souls. Because just... Quitting something doesn't mean you have rest for your soul. You may have rest for your body, but even that is not really satisfactory at a point. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So today, we have a chance to take a load off, to be casting our cares upon Jesus, to say, is there perhaps a, a burden I've been carrying that I'm weary of that I didn't even know I was carrying? because we can be weary from all sorts of things. So we'll be in Isaiah 43, and verse 19 is where we're going to start. And let's just again commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, that though it was spoken many years ago to a people who were far from you in their hearts, it's for us today. Thank you that it is quick and powerful and sharp that it pierces us, that it shows us our motives and, and reveals to us our need to repent. And it, it opens up promises to us that you have given. And a new way of seeing you, seeing others in this world, our purpose in this place. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you transform us. And we ask that you would continue that work in each one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thinking about weary is funny because you can almost say, like, I was tired of something. I was weary of something. Have you ever gone to, like, your, your restaurant that you go to and, and you, you just feel like ch changing it up? You, there's one thing that you found that you like, but you decide on a whim, just, you know, I'm going to get something different. And then totally regret your choice and remember why that other thing was really your favorite thing. Maybe I'm the only one. But the people in Isaiah's day... God had become one flavor among many. He was the usual or the standard. But he was no longer hallowed. He was no longer being glorified for all he had done. And people wanted to mix it up a bit. So they had a bunch of different gods. It was kind of like the people forgot who God was, all he had done for them, all he had promised them, the covenants he had made, how he would provided for them. 
And it was kind of like a, a married couple that's living together, but they're living two separate lives. It's like a God was faithful, but Israel was like a spouse that was spending all of its time on Snapchat and Tinder and uploading selfies and trying to, to hook up with anybody. And, and we see that throughout Jeremiah, that that was the, the mentality spiritually of the nation. And they had a form of worship. They had a form of sacrifice and obedience to God, but their heart wasn't in it. There was no affection. There was no desire. Christian, have you ever been there? When the service of God is weariness, where it is just tiring, and you think, why do I even bother? That's where they were. And you could be there today. But there's hope for you, not in other lovers, of course, but in returning to the one who first loved you. I love that he says, return to your first love. And it's because God first loved us. He loved us first. And that's why we love him. So Isaiah 43, verse 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. God had birthed the nation of Israel from Egypt, a land of bondage. He brought them out and he brought them in to the promised land. He formed them. He loved them. He chose them. He made a path through the Red Sea to deliver them from their enemies. And he says, I'm going to make waters, a flood in the wilderness, to supply your thirst, to help you uh, be satisfied. And it says, the beasts of the field honored him. Even unclean creatures like the jackal and the ostriches. A bit ironic, because Job, he says in Job 39:17 that God deprived Actually, God said this, that he deprived the ostrich of wisdom. Yet the simple bird would honor God for the water that he supplied, even though God's people, whom he had done all these things for, didn't. If you could please turn to Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, you see just again the irony of what God's people had done. Because they had the real thing. They had the one true God. And yet they had spread themselves thin through idolatry. They had been unfaithful. Jeremiah 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now this was unheard of. A nation changing its gods. You had the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Greeks. They had all their gods and their traditions and their legends. And he says, when have they changed their gods? The Egyptian gods are the Egyptian gods. You know what they are. Who, who's ever changed? But my people, they've done two evils. Be astonished, heavens, because they have forsaken me, 
the one who is a fountain of living water to them, and they have labored to to cut themselves cisterns in broken rock. Now, a cistern and a fountain are two totally different things. A fountain actually is the source of clean, pure water. Whereas a cistern, you would dig that in stone to capture rainwater. And it would become, it was often muddy because it would also get some sediment that had drained in there. It could be polluted by contaminants. Now, if you had an opportunity to drink from a running stream or dip out your ladle into a muddy cistern, who knows how long that water's been there and how many mosquitoes have put their larva in that water, which one would you choose? Well, God's people made the wrong choice. In fact, they wearied themselves in sin. They, they blistered their hands and they burnt their skin out there carving away in the rock. And it wasn't even solid rock. You see, if you dug a cistern, you'd want to make sure it didn't have any cracks in it. Because what would happen then, once it has water, the water would, would dry out or contaminants could leach in. So it needed to be solid. But he says, guys, You've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and you're making for yourself a cistern that can't even hold water. Like you're wasting your time. And it's killing you. You're still dry. Because they didn't satisfy their thirst in God, they sought other ways to quench their thirsty souls. And God's people are always an example to us because we are exactly the same. Our tendencies are the same. Jesus is the one who supplies living water, yet it's possible that we could go elsewhere to try to satisfy our thirst. Verse 22, back in Isaiah 43. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. But you have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. Yet you have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. You've got the the ostriches and jackals honoring God, but the people that he formed and loved and chose forsook him. And in their prosperity and peace, God's people stopped seeking his guidance and aid. Notice at the beginning, you have not called upon me. They had ceased to communicate with God. They had lost that communion, that intimacy, that worship with God. And it was evidence that their their desires and their affections had drifted from God. And he says, you have been weary of me. You're tired of me. Serving me is now weariness to you. Making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year, the males were to present themselves before the Lord. And, and maybe it went from three down to two down to one. Then why bother at all? Why should we bother sacrificing to a God who's allowed this conflict that they were facing? What are we getting out of the deal? What sort of return are we getting on our investment? It was too laborious, too expensive, too time-consuming to bring the sacrifices all that way. Tithes, services unto God, it seemed too demanding. But God hadn't made harsh demands on his people. He gave them an inheritance of land. He delivered them from their enemies. 
He blessed them with abundance and he says, of your first fruits, give me a tithe or a tenth. Give me a tenth of what you have. And this was to provide for the priests and Levites who served God. That was their inheritance. They didn't get an inheritance of land. Their inheritance was to have this role to serve God. And so the tithes and the offerings were a way to provide for them because they couldn't work the land. And God had done everything for his people. They only existed because of his grace and his mercy and goodness. And he blessed them, but they did not think to bless him. They did the bare minimum if they did anything at all. And it's like he gave them generously, yet they would not bring themselves or give themselves to God. And uh, it's like, be astonished. It's like, wow, how could they do that, right? Think about this, this example of a wicked king. Uh, you have wicked King Herod. He enjoyed a dance by Salome so much, he says, I'll give you anything up to half of the kingdom. It was a dance. And because she had pleased him, he says, I want to give you something. Ask anything. And she, honoring her mother, loyal to her mother, said, Mother, what should I ask for? And her mother had a bone to pick with uh, John the Baptist. She says, I want John the Baptist's head on a plate. Okay, so she went to Herod and she said, I would like the head of John the Baptist, please. It's a pretty grisly request. And it said that the king, he hated to do it, but he did it for the sake of the people and because of the oath that he had made. You think, how, how can God's people not respond to the good he's done for them? To give him something just because, because they love him. They were weary with God. They were tired of going through the motions. God was not in their thoughts. And he says, you haven't, you haven't brought me anything sweet. You haven't brought anything that satisfies. You've just wearied me with your sin. You've just brought your sin to me. Now, sin, it's abominable before God. It's disgusting. It's despicable. It's hateful. Sin is the root cause of sickness and sorrow and ultimately death of the people God loves. And he hates it. Offering God sin would be like on Elizabeth's birthday, giving her the head of her son on a plate. Would that be acceptable? No. And though that's a pretty gruesome uh, example, it's nowhere near as horrible as wearying God with sin. A total injustice. Horrible. Check this out, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. God is the only one who could forgive or blot out, to, to cover, to erase, to hide their sins. And he says, I'm not forgiving your sin in return for sacrifice, but for my own name's sake. I'm going to forgive your sins for me, for my sake, not for yours. 
God didn't need sacrifices. The people needed God. The ability for people to sacrifice and have their sins atoned for, that's by God's grace. He didn't have to create that provision, but he did because he wanted a way for justice to be satisfied and for people to be restored to relationship with him. And yet, appearing before God to offer sacrifice, it became a wearisome duty. The the thanksgiving, the gratefulness was gone of what God had done. God said this in Psalm 59 through 15. He says, I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Isn't that cool? Where he says, offer me thanksgiving, pay your vows. Really, call upon me. I want to hear from you. I want to hear your voice because I love you and I delight in you. And I'll forgive you for my sake. Not because you sacrificed all these bulls. Not because you you fulfilled a law. It's because I love you. God said, I'm the one who will not remember your sin. How about remembering me? People offered sacrifices for themselves, but not for God. And let that sink in. When we ask for forgiveness, is it just so I can get off the hook, or is it for God and his glory? Is it so his name will be glorified through my life, because now I'm walking in the way that pleases him? We can ask, just, we can, we can be focused on our past faults, our failures, instead of remembering how good God is to us and all he's done. The first created man, Adam, sinned, and we have all sinned since him. Abraham, the fathers of faith that were, uh, promoted and placed in high esteem. God's saying, they've all failed. They've all sinned. Jacob would be ensnared in a net. Israel would be reproached and reviled. In verse 28, he said, I will profane their great men. So the ones you revere, the ones you look at as pillars in the temple of God, they'll become profane. There's no hope in them. And though Israel did all this to provoke God to anger, what did he do? Did he say, I'm swearing you off forever. You're not my people. You're dead to me. No, he says, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to send my own son to be your savior. The sins that you have wearied me with, I am going to forget them. They weren't pleased to offer sacrifice, but God would send his son who would not do as he pleased so that their sins could be washed. It says in Romans 15.3, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So the God's people had reproached him, and God came to take away their reproach. It's like Jesus didn't come to please himself. He came to take away their reproach. He didn't have 
to die. He didn't have to suffer. He could have done what he liked. He's God. He's the king, right? Kings do what they like. But he chose to do that to demonstrate his love for us. And in light of that great exchange where God takes our sin that has wearied us, that was killing us, and he says, I will take that away from you, and I will give you my righteousness, and I will restore you as a child of God to be with me forever. It's phenomenal what God has done. In light of that, how should we live? What sort of sweet thing can we bring to God today? Well, the Bible tells us how we should live. Romans 12, it says it's our reasonable service to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. There's a woman that has been really influential in my life. I I feel like I connect with her, though she lived before me. Her name is Gladys Aylward, but she's a British woman who was a missionary in China. She had a heart to go to China, and she told a moving story how God brought this truth of the gospel home to her in a real practical way. She was walking along a country road in China in the 1930s sometime. I don't know the precise date. But she saw a woman with a dirty child by the side of the road, and and it, it was the woman's intention to sell the child. And she felt God prompt her, buy, buy her for me, buy her. And she's like, "Ah, I don't have any money. And God, I like her own words. She's like, oh, yes, you have. She's like, oh, well, I do have a few coppers in my pocket, but let me tell you, God, how I earned this money. I had to climb up these mountains and, and like I worked for it and this is mine. And you don't know what it's like. Now, I had to climb up mountains on my hands and knees, and, and God said, you know, I know all about that because I climbed a mountain and I let evil men do whatever they wanted to me. I know all about it. So with that, Gladys relented. She gave the woman equivalent of nine pence for the child, and that day, 20 shillings made a British pound, 12 pence made a shilling, so nine Shillings was three quarters of a shilling. The modern value of about nine dollars Australian. So she, but she gave all she had. So she called the child nine pence because that's what she paid for her. And nine pence was the one that brought, started bringing the other orphans that Gladys began caring for until there were over 80 children that she supported by God's grace in that time. So it's so neat how the one that was bought brought others to receive of that grace and goodness. And and this is the point. Gladys had the heart to give all that she had in her pocket at his request because Jesus gave all his whole life for her. It was through the gospel that she realized, Jesus has given me everything. How can I not give him what he asks for? And because Gladys struggled, she was a a strong, godly woman, she struggled to give up $9 at God's request. When she'd received the eternal riches of the kingdom, so I say, that can be me too. If she could struggle to give up 9 bucks, I might struggle to give a dollar when God says, give a dollar to that person or do this for me. Only with God's help can we give all he asks. 
Because realize, all we have is by his grace. Giving out of guilt or obligation, it will never do, but just out of response of God's generosity and what he's given to us, what we've received, we can freely give. So continuing, Isaiah 44, starting in verse 1. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Though God's people were weary of him, they had forsaken him, he had good things to say to them and to do for them. We only make promises to people that we trust or we feel are deserving in some way. But God gives sure promises to the unworthy, even to the disqualified. He says kind things. He speaks gently to us. We look for people to trust, and God entrusts his presence with us. It's amazing to think about. So God says, listen up, Israel. I made you. I formed you. I will help you. I've chosen you. Don't be afraid. You've forsaken me. You've hewn for yourselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water, but I'm going to pour water out on you. I'm going to pour my spirit upon you and your descendants. When you've been running around, you know, digging in the ground, forsaking me, I'm just going to dump my spirit upon you. Just pour it out. Pour him out upon you. In the wilderness, water means life. And God would revive his people. They were dry. He could see that. He knew. He knew they were dry. He was going to send his spirit, though. And God would initiate this outpouring. He would send Jesus. Jesus would pray the Father who would send the Holy Spirit, the comforter and helper who seals us, who regenerates us, who overflows in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is the blessing God will pour out on the children of faith in Jesus. And this is for us today. God will cause people to spring up new life everywhere. So when we're born again through Christ, through faith in him, the Holy Spirit is who causes us to be born again. That's called spiritual regeneration. And the gift of the fullness of the Spirit was received by Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost after Christ ascended to heaven. They had remained in Jerusalem, as he said, until the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And the people had the Holy Spirit upon them. They were speaking in tongues. People came and said, what is going on over there? They must be drunk. And and then Peter takes a moment, empowered by the Spirit, to instruct them and tell them what just happened. And he explains to the curious onlookers at the end, in Acts 2, 38 and 39, Then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord will call. Now there was a point in the early church where the Jews believed that they were the ones who would receive the baptism with the Spirit, this blessing that God had spoken about. 
There was a point where Peter, God had given him a vision to go to a man named Cornelius, to go with three men who came to his door. And he went with them with other Jewish believers. And he begins to expound the gospel to them, like in their, I don't know, in their courtyard or dining room or something. It's just kind of a, a casual meeting where Cornelius has called some of his relatives along and who would be interested to hear about this. And he begins preaching Christ crucified, giving him the gospel. And this is what happened in Acts 10, 44. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, so he's still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Though tongues does not always accompany the baptism with the Spirit who gives gifts as he wills, God saw fit that the Gentiles would have a very similar experience with the Jews so they would recognize, wow, this is something we did not believe was possible. It was crazy enough that God poured out his Spirit on us, but he has also poured his Spirit on the Gentiles. We got to get these guys baptized. I mean, they're as saved as we are. There are no second-class citizens of heaven. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no, like, oh, you're extra special because of your, your birth. Hey, we are all children of God, and God loves each one of us. We have all been baptized into Christ by one Spirit. The promise of the Spirit is for us, our children, and as many as the Lord will call. Now, our experience with the Holy Spirit, it's going to be different from person to person. There will be variety. God's made us all unique. He has put us in different places in the body. He gifts according to his will. At the same time, there is some common ground between those who have received this blessing. Number one, we have to be born again. We need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And we are called also to ask. We see that in Luke eleven thirteen, Just like we would ask to be born again, that we would ask for the Holy Spirit because it says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So asking. Asking is one of the rules of the kingdom, right? Ask and you shall receive through faith. The third one is faith. That's something common among those who have, we see in Scripture, having received the Spirit. Paul asked the Christians in Galatia, in Galatians 3, 2, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So it's by the hearing of faith. The fourth one is obedience, being obedient to God. Acts 5, 32, it says, and we are as witnesses to these things, so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So for those of you who would say with certainty, I know I have been filled with the Holy Spirit, I would ask you, are you being filled to overflowing right now? It's not just a one-time thing to be filled with the Spirit. We need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see that many times in the life of Paul and Peter. It says filled with the Holy Ghost or filled with the Holy Spirit. That there was this, because we're a lot like those cisterns in our flesh that are leaky and cracked and dry. 
That's how we are. That's our flesh. It's a broken cistern. It can hold no water. But if God makes us a fountain of living water, as he promised, we will be refreshed. We will be overflowing. And there will be a purity of life because of that flow. To those who do not know if you have been filled with the fullness of God, are you thirsty to have his presence within you? That you would know the fullness of God. That you would walk in the fullness of God. And whatever he says, you're willing to do because you love him and you trust him. Will you submit to him? There's no formula, if you look through the New Testament, there's no formula of being filled with the Holy Spirit. God does that. But the reality is you can be, and it's God's will. We know if we pray according to God's will, he hears us, and if he hears us, we have what he has, what we have requested of him. Isaiah 44, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear, do not be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. God is the self-existent one. I love how that's written there. The Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Right? Speaking of Christ, the Redeemer. He says, who can proclaim as I do? That was something people recognized about Jesus. There was one time where people... They were the, the guards were called to arrest Jesus, and they went in, and they were listening to him, and, and they just kind of, they didn't. And they were, they were talked to by their superiors, say, why didn't you arrest that man? They said, nobody speaks like this man. They were, they were arrested. They could not do anything to him because of the authority with which he spoke. There was no greater honor to be given a message by the Most High God, and the prophets would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. He said, it's been said, quoting the law, and then, but I say unto you, himself, he has the authority. That was shocking. They're like, whoa, we don't know what to do with this guy because of the way he's speaking. There's no answer to his wisdom. Who in this world has always told the truth? Who among us has never lied or told a story because we had misinformation and we told the details a bit wrong because we, oh, I didn't really know that, right? We, we've all made that mistake. Who, who among us hasn't, who has remembered every time they've given their word for something and followed through? Hmm. Yeah, well, you said this. No, I didn't. know. Oh, maybe I did. I can't remember, right? We forget. Haven't we all slipped into gossip or spoken harsh words or, or cursed or, or uh, sworn, falsely accused, exaggerated? And God says, arrange your evidence, stack it all up, see if it matches me. Because I proclaimed and it's all come to pass. I've never said the wrong thing. I've always given my word. It is 100% correct. See if you can measure up. Take your best shot. Tell me something I don't know. (laughs) 
Thomas Edison, he's believed by many to be one of the greatest inventors of all time. He has 1,093 patents attributed to him, notably inventing, and, and this is just scratching the surface, the phonograph, the light bulb, motion pictures, the alkaline battery, the magnetic ore separator, and you just go on and on and on. I'm like, whoa. And he also improved the telephone and the telegraph. He made it automatic, an automatic telegraph. He made it so you could actually hear someone on the other end and could go over long distances. He invented generators. The guy was brilliant, and this is what he said. He says, we don't know a millionth of one percent about anything. And if he's just speaking for himself, well then, I know a lot less than that. Yet God knows it all. He sees it all. Do you find it intimidating that God would have such knowledge and power that he knows everything? It really should. When you realize what he knows, he knows that I've been weary of him. He knows I've forsaken him. He knows that I've been dry and I've sought to quench my thirst in other ways. But knowing this, he says, do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So he's talking to people who have been weary of him. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be startled. I'm not going to go back on my word. We have a redeeming God and praise him. He loves projects. He loves projects. Now, I don't know if, if, I'm sure some of you have in your careers had the opportunity or the responsibility to hire people, to bring them on board. If you've ever been in that position, I seriously doubt you sought out candidates who were untrained, without any potential, there was 100% unable to do or understand the work they would be paid handsomely for. Absolutely no upside whatsoever. You would not be looking for those people, but that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't go to the, 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 the trained professionals in Jerusalem who taught uh, the law, who were masters of the law. He went to men who were washing their nets, untrained men, people who were tradies. They had no background in studying and, and doing. And he's like, I'm going to commit the work of God to these guys. To that lady who's demon-possessed, she's going to be one of my witnesses. She's going to be my ambassador. She's the one I want. I've chosen her. Pretty amazing. They could not do God's work, but once he transformed them and filled them with his spirit, they would turn the world upside down. Spreading living water everywhere. See, God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you to do his work, but he offers us redemption, salvation, and a partnership, really. He says, I want you to be mine, and I want to dwell inside of you. Abide in my love. Trust me. Don't be afraid. He says, is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And coming from him, that's definitive. God knew perfectly the mentality of people. The very first commandment, what was it? Written in stone, it said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
He said this to people who would begin to bow down before stone and worship it. He wrote this in stone. There shall be no other gods besides me. And he says, there's not one. I know not one. The one who made everything, he says, there's nobody else. I'm the only one. There is, that is a good question to ask ourselves though. Is there a God I worship besides God? Every other God is silent and useless and really dead weight around our necks that drag us down to hell. Like there's no other salvation besides through Christ. But he is for us a rock of salvation, a chief cornerstone. He doesn't pull us down, but he actually lifts us up. He redeems. He restores. He transforms. He gives us new life. He upholds us by his grace. And those who hear Christ's words and obey them, he says, I'll liken him to a a man who builds his house on the rock. No matter how the rain falls or the wind bashes against it, it stands strong because its foundation is secure. Peter says that we in the church, we are living stones called to offer spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God. So we're like God's house, God's building, and, and we're called to be offering ourselves as sacrifices. And we, be, we can become weary of God when we try to measure up by our own effort. When we think that that's the way that we find favor with God is by measuring up to some arbitrary standard. But when we recognize that God has given us a new identity through Christ, that being born again is his work, Being filled with the Spirit is His work. And we are now His to be used by Him and for Him however He desires. And He's going to give us the strength to do impossible things that's truly impossible, not just difficult. He will accomplish with or without us, but He wants to do it in and through us what He will do in this world. I want to be a part of that. We can be renewed day by day. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God has chosen you. He's come to you. And he offered himself to have you. And he offers himself to fill you and to empower you. And all you have and all you are is by his grace. He knows your your faults. He knows your past. He knows your failures. But he is a redeemer. That is in his nature to do. He will redeem. Because of your new birth, you are now qualified through him to proclaim his praises to be an acceptable sacrifice before him. Now, if you could please turn to Ephesians 3.14, we'll finish with this prayer, which is truly God's will for you today. God wants to fill us for his sake. And we can receive of him the fullness of God. So Ephesians 3 verse 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, 
to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's will for us all, that we could be strengthened with might through his Spirit, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would know with all the saints the height, depth, length, breadth of God's love, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you ask or think. Our prayers are so small. Even our impossible prayers, God's like, I can go above that. I'll go beyond that. It's not about what you've done for, for me, but what I'm going to do for you. It's all I have done for you and all I want to do in and through you. The children of Israel, they were weary from hewing themselves cisterns. That's a tough job, digging around in stone. They were weary. They were broken. And I can identify with those cisterns sometimes. Perhaps you can too. Nothing. There's no living water in there only just contaminants. And it seems like the less water, the more contaminated. But when we become that, when we have Christ and the Holy Spirit as that source of living water, how we are purified, how our lives begin to reflect that transformation. Do you want to be a refreshing, pure fountain of living water through the Holy Spirit? Because that is your birthright as a child of God. That is his will for you, that you would know him and his love personally and practically. So will we present ourselves, will you present yourself as a living sacrifice today, just laying yourself bare before him so you might be filled? In Jesus, you'll find rest for your soul. Let's thank him. Lord, we thank you that you are a redeeming God. You are a savior and there is no other Thank you for that living water. Lord, we've tasted and seen that you're good, but we are those, we do, I do, resemble those cracked cisterns that can hold no water, not able to hold it. And I I am, Lord, sometimes content with, with muddy water when you have offered us living water. So I confess that before you, Lord, and I ask that you would fill me to overflowing today with your spirit, continually supplying that water so that I might be refreshed. And for my brothers and sisters here today, Lord, if they don't know you, people here, I pray that they would know you. They would be born again. And for those who have not experienced the fullness of God, Lord, I pray we would receive of your spirit today, that we would desire uh, to, to be filled with the fullness of God, and that your grace and your love would flow through us, and that others would come to Christ through our witness. Thank you, Lord, that it's you who both wills and does of your good pleasure within us, and I pray that we would encourage and support one another, that we'd be strengthened in the inner man, that we would 
uh, be grounded in love and able to comprehend with all saints the depths of your love for us. Thank you that you are the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all above all that we ask or think according to that power that works in us, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, revive us today. Fill us with your presence and cause us to, to rejoice and praise you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.